0: Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Romans this morning, Romans chapter 5, verses 18 through 21, abounding sin, super abounding grace is what I've titled the message, and let's ask the Lord to bless our time in the Word. Lord, again, we thank you for your your Word. Uh, Help us to glean from the text that which you would have for us to see. Help me to teach accurately and clearly in terms of what the Word of God clearly has to teach us. And I just pray that the Holy Spirit would have his way in all of our hearts and lives. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you'll note on the overhead the the theme is uh, the righteousness of God, the gospel of God. And then as far as the outline, we have worked our way down to that section, justification by grace through faith, which we are finishing out here this morning. Well, after the prologue, Paul's first major developed theme in the book of Romans deals with sin. The flow of Romans 1 through 5 goes like this. Uh, We have a universal sin problem. God has provided a universal solution in the person of Jesus. But we must receive the solution by faith alone. I mean, there's a major section right here following sin on justification by faith alone. I mean, that's a dominant theme in chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 5, verse 21. So uh, note the flow here again. Justification by faith alone stated, Romans 3, illustrated in Abraham, Romans 4, and applied to Jesus, Romans chapter 5. In explaining salvation, the Bible speaks in terms of three categories of imputation. Uh, To impute means to put to the account of someone. And uh, we, uh, this is by way of review, noted this last week uh, three key imputations. The imputation of Adam's sin to the human race, which we will again note this morning. The imputation of humanity's sin to Christ, which we will again note this morning. And then the imputation of Christ's righteousness to believers. In Romans 5, 12-21, Paul presents the truth of sin and salvation in terms of solidarity. And note what we have here. Solidarity in Adam, related to sin and death. And we're born into this reality. And then there's solidarity in Christ, which relates to righteousness and life. And we're born into that reality by faith. In Romans 5:12 through 21, the key idea being developed is that of solidarity. Paul began his thought in Romans 5:12 by saying through one man sin entered the world. And then he said in this all sinned. One sinned, all sinned. That is solidarity with Adam. But this was just the beginning of his thought, which was then interrupted by verses 13 through 17. Now in verse 18, he comes back to complete the parallel thought that he is wanting to develop. We read there, let's pick it up, Romans 5:18. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men resulting in justification of life. Now, a smoother, a little bit more literal translation of this verse is seen in the Legacy Standard Bible, which is a fairly new translation, but very much uh, related to, very close to the New American Standard. Uh, Maybe just a few updates, but a very good translation. Uh, And we read there, So then as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. In Romans 5.18, Paul is summarizing his main idea, brought out in Romans 5.12-17, which is that of solidarity, related to the representative heads of the human race. In Adam, we are under the reign of sin and death, on the road to eternal condemnation. In contrast, through faith we are in Christ, which delivers us from sin and death and results in a reign of righteousness and life. I want you to note the parallel here of all men, all related to Adam and all related to Christ. There is an exact parallel here, and yet a qualifier. First note that there are two one acts. Here, there is Adam's one offense, transgression, trespass, however you want to uh, translate it. The idea is that of a false step, one false step that resulted in the condemnation of all. Thus, in Adam, all are born under sin. We all come with sin. We are all sinners by nature and by choice. In contrast, there is the one act of righteousness, referring to the cross and resurrection of Christ in combination, as noted earlier in 425, which results in justification of life to all. Now, there is a parallel being made, and yet the surrounding context clearly indicates a distinction. You see, we are born in Adam apart from any personal choice. But that's not true, ...when it comes to being in Christ. In verse 16, Paul says, "...and the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned." Indicating there are some distinctions here. In the immediate context of Romans 5.17, I mean the verse just preceding this, Paul has just said that those who reign in life are those who, quote, "...receive the abundance of the grace and the gift of righteousness." The gift of salvation has to be received. What we are in Adam comes automatically with being human. What we have in Christ has to be received. There's a distinction there. And in the greater context, we see it as received by faith. I mean, before building up to this chapter, huge emphasis on justification by faith. So note the connection here, Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Connect that down to verse 17. If by one man's offense death reigns through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through one Jesus Christ. So I want us to connect in our minds justification by faith with the idea of received. Received. This is how you receive, by faith. So note the distinction, but there is also a parallel. Just as we did nothing personal to be in Adam, likewise, we do nothing in terms of works to be in Christ. Just as Adam represented us all in the fall, so Christ has also represented us all in the matter of justification. The point is, provision has been made for all, apart from any doing of our own. And this is a a theme that is readily seen throughout the scriptures. Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. John 1, 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. The whole world. First Timothy 2.6, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. First John 2 2, he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. This is not an isolated emphasis in the scriptures. Hebrews 2 9 says, Christ by the grace of God tasted death for everyone. As we noted in Romans 5, 6, Christ died for the ungodly. Peter goes so far as to say that Jesus bought, that is paid for, false teachers who deny the Lord and whose end is destruction. By the way, I think this is what makes the rejection of Christ so very serious. To reject his provision of grace is offensive beyond description people will be judged for rejecting the free gift provided by Jesus. We read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel. It was there for them, but they did not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, and from the glory of His power. We read in Hebrews. We do, but we're not going there yet. <laughs> uh, Hebrews 10, let me just read it to you. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth. This comes after we have received. These people know. The truth has been presented to them. The knowledge of the truth is shorthand for the gospel, Paul likes to use this reference, not to say that he wrote Hebrews, because we don't know. But uh, the knowledge of the truth is shorthand for Paul for the gospel. If If we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And then a few verses later, he says in verse 29, Hebrews 10, 29, of how much worse punishment you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, Counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing. and insulted the spirit of grace. Major punishment coming to those who reject in this way. So justification of life has been made available to all men. But it must be received by faith. Just as sin ushered in condemnation, conversely, justification issues in life. Justification means to be declared righteous. We are justified by faith, and that ushers in life. Justification of life is justification which issues in life. Now, verse 19 essentially makes the same point as verse 18, only in a little different language. Note there, verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. The one man's disobedience was Adam's sin of eating the forbidden fruit in the garden. Disobedience indicates the volitional nature of the sin. In that one act of disobedience, many were made sinners. The action of the one affected the many. All who are in Adam are born sinners. There is no exception. We're made sinners is the idea we're constituted as. In Adam's sin, we are all considered by God to be sinners. Now, five times, in five verses, Paul makes the point that it was through the singular sin of the one man, Adam, that death and judgment came upon the entire human race, on how Strong, or how much stronger you can make the point. It's an incredibly strong emphasis on solidarity with Adam. Note here, verse 15 By the one man's offense, many died. Verse 16, Judgment came from one offense. Verse 17, By the one man's offense, death reigned. Verse 18, Through one man's offense, judgment came to all. Verse 19, By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. The emphasis of Romans 5, 12 through 19 is that the action of the representative head, whether in the case of Adam or Christ, affects the whole of humanity. Just as Adam's disobedience constituted all as sinners, so also Christ's obedience at the cross constitutes as righteous, all who believe in him. Adam's response to temptation was, my will be done. But Christ's response to temptation was, not my will, but yours be done. And he humbled himself, as it says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. It's on the basis of Christ's obedience of going to the cross that we now are made righteous on the basis of faith. To be made righteous means to be acquitted of all charges, to be cleared of all charges before God. In view is the legal standing of those who come to be made righteous. Now, Paul in this context is contrasting condemnation with justification. Being made sinners... With being made righteous. Paul is not yet dealing with practical sanctification, which he will get to in chapter six through eight. And by the way, let me just interject here and I'll bring this out. (laughs) But you get to chapter six, dealing with practical sanctification. He bases everything he is saying in chapter six on the solidarity that's been established in chapter five. Here in chapter five, he is dealing with our positional standing on the basis of our union with our representative head. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. <clears throat> for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Again, we note a corresponding provision. Many were made sinners. Many will be made righteous. The same verb were made, used in reference to made sinners is in reference to made righteous. In both cases, this is applied on the basis of the action of the representative head. But note again the qualifier in the greater context regarding justification by faith. And those who receive, verse 17. Paul in 1 Timothy 4.10 says... For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, provisionally, especially those who believe, actually. Note the emphasis here. The believer is not only declared righteous, but actually made righteous. This relates to the believer's new nature, born again, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The believer now has a whole new identity, a whole new nature. Our spirit is now wed to the Holy Spirit. This new nature never sins and never desires to sin. Desires only holiness. Of course, we still have the old flesh. Our old sin nature, and hence there's a struggle. I often say Christians are conflicted people. We have the flesh, we have the spirit. We have both realities. First Corinthians 6:17, he was joined to the Lord, is one spirit with him. The Holy Spirit and our spirit, our new nature, joined together. 2 Peter 1:4, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. We now partake of the divine nature. 1 John 3, 9, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Again, I believe this relates to the, the new nature that is wed to God's Spirit. Verse 20, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Now, a Jewish objector listening to this conversation may well have a problem with what Paul has been saying. You see, for the pious Jew, everything revolved around the law of Moses. The Jews had a saying, in fact, the more Torah, the more life. Well, Paul has shown that the great issues of sin and salvation revolve around the two representative heads of the human race. So what about the law? How does that fit in? I mean, this is the major emphasis in the Old Testament, certainly a major emphasis. The law didn't come on the scene, however, until about 2,500 years into human history. The words entered means slipped in, crept in, Or came in beside, this shows it was really not a major part of the plan. It was merely a a footnote to drive home a point in redemptive history. The law was never given to save people, it merely made sin more clear. It served to magnify it, it put it in bold. The law brought sin to a head. The law of Moses did not make people sinners. It only revealed how great a sinners they were. Note the singular offense. This is not plural, singular offense. It does not say that offenses, plural, might abound. No, it is what sin already is in essence, that the law magnifies. When it says the law entered that the offense might abound, think of a magnifying glass. Understand the word abound in the sense of magnify. The law magnifies sin, and sin magnifies grace. I read of a paper boy who would ride his bike to deliver papers. There was one house on the corner that he would just cut across the lawn every day. He kind of knew this wasn't right, but he kept doing it to the point a path started to develop. But one day as he came to this lawn, he saw a sign in bold letters that said, keep off grass, no bikes. He rode right past that sign, right up to the feet of the owner who shared his heart with him. Whereas previously he had a consciousness that this was wrong, now it was magnified. This is what the law did. It magnified sin. What was previously inherently wrong according to conscience was now formally transgression. Romans 3, we looked at this, we studied this. Romans three nineteen and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for by the law is the knowledge of sin a deeper knowledge. It magnifies it, makes it even more clear. Not only does the law magnify sin in the sense of bringing a heightened awareness of it, it also serves to provoke the sin nature. Given the fact that the sin nature has a problem with God, it has a problem with God's rules. Give the sin nature a law and it feels the urge to cross the line. The forbidden fruit syndrome entices the sin nature. We read, and we'll get to this, Lord willing, but Romans 7:8. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. David Gazik says, Because of the sinfulness of my heart, when I see a line, I want to cross it. In this sense, the law makes sin abound because it draws clear lines between right and wrong that my sinful heart wants to break. Therefore, the law makes me sin more. Not because there's anything wrong with the law, only because something is deeply wrong in the human condition. Well, in this way, the law caused sin to abound. The law helps us to see the gravity of our sin and serves as a tool to show our need of grace. As Paul says in Galatians 3.24, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But then he says, But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Sin can never outdo grace. As bad as the effects of sin were, grace was more than able to restore. Not only restore, but lift us higher than ever before. Now, we might have expected the text to say, Where sin abounded, God's wrath and judgment abounded all the more, right? But no, it says where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Now, we see the world drowning in sin all around us. And do we not often say, how much longer can this possibly go on before judgment day comes? And in due time, it will surely come. However, we consistently underestimate the grace of God. God is still saving people. Some of the worst sinners imaginable, such as me. Grace is still abounding. And grace goes further than any of us can ever imagine. You cannot imagine your position in grace. It will take all eternity for us to, to get our mind around it, and we never will. Someone says, I think I have sinned so great that I'm beyond the scope of God's forgiveness. This person really does not understand grace. Grace is greater than all sin, no matter the sin you have committed. Paul said he was the chief, the worst of all sinners. You know, he kind of said that under inspiration. I wonder if he was right. Uh, He certainly saw himself that way. And God, by grace, saved him. Not only saved him, made him an apostle. There is no sin so great that grace is not greater still. Full forgiveness is provided for all sin in total. Jesus paid for all sin that will ever be committed, period. He paid for it in total. The blood of Jesus is totally sufficient. So tell me about your abounding sin. Go on and on and on. When you get done telling me how bad you have been, I will say to you, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Full provision has been made. I don't care what it is. Note, it didn't just barely meet the need. It abounds much more. Grace goes way over the top. Grace is so outrageous as to be incredibly beyond what we can comprehend. We have no idea all that the grace of God has in store for us. Abounded much more is the idea of superabounded, it's supersized. It's impossible for sin to stretch beyond grace. You cannot outsin grace. Spurgeon preached a sermon titled, Grace Abounding Over Abounding Sin. However, grace must be accepted. You know, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we then as workers together with him plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. In the day of salvation, I have helped you. It's available. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. But you have to receive. There's that word receive again. He's pleading with them not to receive the grace of God in vain. David Gazik says, we can't sin more than God can forgive. But we can reject his grace and forgiveness. Yeah, that's where the whole issue of receiving comes in. The emphasis is not that people go to hell for sin, which they do, but that's really not the main point. Rather, they go to hell because they reject the grace of God that has been provided in the person of Christ. This is the real standout eternal crime. In grace, God shows lavish extravagance to people of faith, both in terms of quality and quantity. Grace is all about God's superlative generosity. Liberty Bible Commentary, as deep as sin goes, God's grace goes deeper. As wide as sin is, God's grace is wider. When sin abounded, grace superabounded. God's grace is greater than all our sin. Maybe we'll sing a song about that sometime. (laughs) Clearly abounding grace has the believer's eternal life in view, as the next verse makes clear. But some Bible teachers have understood superabounding grace to indicate that in the end, there will be more people in heaven than in hell. In the end, what Adam's disobedience did will be eclipsed by the obedience of Christ in terms of the sheer number of people who will be saved. Now, I am not necessarily espousing this view, I'm just saying it's out there. I hope it's true. I really wonder if it is, but uh, someone as respected as Charles Spurgeon took this view. So when Charles Spurgeon, (laughs) the prince of preachers, says something, we tend to kind of listen. I mean, he was right just almost all the time. But he said, I believe there will be more in heaven than in hell. If anyone asks me why I think so, I answer, because Christ in everything is to have the preeminence. And I cannot conceive how he could have the preeminence if there are to be more in the dominions of Satan than in paradise. Uh, Not an uncommon view, uh, totally. Uh, S. Lewis Johnson, another well-known Bible teacher, our great God of sovereign grace has included a multitude which no one can number of every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. It may well be that there shall be far more people saved than are lost. Now, Spurgeon took into account the millions of infants who have died through the years. In our country, they alone estimate the number of abortions to be somewhere between 65 and 70 million. China, with their one-child policy, now reversed, by the way. now not, not, oh, oh, we got a problem now. We don't have enough young people. So they've reversed the policy, by the way. But they, through the years, had millions and millions of children murdered in this way. Now, we don't know how many people have lived on planet Earth. Uh, We do know about 4,500 years ago, a worldwide flood wiped out everyone except Noah and his family. Some think that right now there might be more people alive on planet Earth than have lived all down through history, but we really don't know for sure. Uh, I do believe that the greatest revival of all time is coming. It will follow the rapture of the church. When the day of the Lord's judgment falls on the world, untold millions and millions and perhaps billions of people will get saved. You say, where do you find that? Well, it's in the book of Revelation that I find it. We read in chapter 7, verse 9, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one can number, innumerable, of all nations, tribes, peoples, tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands. He jumped down a few verses. One of the elders answered and said to me, who are these? Who are radiant white robes? Where did they come from? This innumerable amount of people. Where did they come from? I said to him, sir, you know. That's a good answer, by the way. (laughs) So he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and wash their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This innumerable amount of people come out of the tree. You think God's going to have the world's attention in the day of the Lord? Oh, big time. Others such as John Calvin also shared in Spurgeon's view. Another argument for this is God's promise to Abraham to make his descendants as innumerable as the stars of heaven. And they note that Abraham is the spiritual father of all believers, as emphasized in Romans 4. Maybe Spurgeon... And those who agree with him on this view are right, but maybe not. Verses like this give me great pause. Lots of other verses too, but Matthew 7, Jesus speaking, Enter by the narrow gate, wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Now certainly for those who come to faith, for those in Christ, where sin abounded, grace has abounded much more. But as to the number this involves versus the number who are lost, to me this is not clear. In fact, the emphasis in the Bible is consistently on a remnant, not a majority. Even at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, the number who follow Satan are shown to be as the sand, as the, as the sand of the sea. Revelation 20, verse 8. But let me say this. I hope Spurge is right. I am glad to be wrong here. I hope he's right. But I seriously question it. The emphasis on abounding grace in the context of Romans 5 is related to those who receive the gift, to those who are justified by faith. But that is not necessarily reflected in the number who are saved simply applies to those who are saved. Now, it is fitting that the emphasis on superabounding grace in verse 20 rounds out the much more motive that is a prevailing emphasis throughout Romans 5. Uh, Note this. Romans 5.9, much more justified by his blood, saved from wrath. 5.10, much more reconciled, saved by his life. 5.15, much more the grace of God, abounded to many. 5.17, much more those who receive will reign in life. 5.20, sin abounded, grace abounded, much more. There's an emphasis being made. For those in Christ, we have so much more than we we ever lost in Adam. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin reigns in death. The word death means separation. In Adam, we are born in sin, and because of this, we all die. In Adam, in sin, we are separated from God spiritually. We are alienated from the life of God. And if we die in our sin without being reconciled to God, we will suffer an eternal death an eternal separation from God in hell forever. Thus, sin reigns in death for all eternity for the unbeliever. The final word on unbelief is death, eternal death. And in this case, sin reigns eternally over the unbeliever. Sin has its way as king over them forever and ever. People who die in sin do not have everlasting life. Sometimes people say, well, they too have everlasting life. No, they don't. They have everlasting existence, which happens to be called death. They have everlasting death, everlasting misery, everlasting separation from God. We read final great white throne judgment of all the unbelievers, Revelation 20. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, death, and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works, Death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, eternal death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. But as sin reigned in death, even so for the believer, grace reigns through righteousness to eternal life. We have contrasted here the reign of sin and the reign of grace. Grace for the believer now reigns. It reigns in triumph over death. It reigns in triumph through righteousness. Now on the basis of God's grace, we are now made right with God, resulting in eternal life. Grace now reigns through the righteousness God bestows on the basis of faith. Grace in the surrounding context is shown to be the cross, resurrection work of Christ. Note this tremendous emphasis. Verse 15, the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ. It's a gift. That's grace. Verse 16, the free gift resulted in justification. Verse 17, receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. Through the one, Jesus Christ. Verse 18, through one man's righteous act, justification of life. Verse 19, by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. This is abounding grace, as seen in verse 20, what Christ did for us at the cross. We often describe grace this way, G-R-A-C-E, grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Because of Christ, grace now reigns through righteousness to eternal life for the believer. Grace paid the price for our sin, making it possible to be right with God resulting in eternal life. I love this quote from Alva McLean. Listen carefully. In verse 12, Adam's sin and death are featured, but at the end of verse 21, a direct contrast is made. Jesus Christ, our Lord, corresponds to Adam. Righteousness corresponds to sin. Life corresponds to death. There is one more term that has no corresponding one. That is grace. It is that little word that makes all the difference between Adam's sin, death, and Christ's righteousness, life. It's the added term. And that is why the apostle dares to lay the two things side by side and say, look at them. The one is much more than the other. It is because the one contains the grace of God. Eternal life is God's life. Now on the basis of grace, we are made right with God And now share in his life. Death means separation. Life means union. We are now in eternal union with God. We will never be separated from him. Thus, grace reigns through righteousness. Grace reigns to eternal life. Grace has overcome death. Instead of death being king, grace is now reigning in life. Eternal life refers to both quantity and quality. You see, eternal life by itself, or by its very definition, is forever. It's eternal. Eternal life is eternal. How's that for a revelation? It will never end. Now, some people, Christians, shallow in their thinking in my perspective, but some people think you can lose your eternal life. That is so wrong on so many levels. To start with, if you have eternal life, you can't lose it, because if you could lose it, it would not be eternal. It would be temporary life. God hasn't promised us temporary life. We as believers have eternal life. Now, eternal life not only lasts forever. It's not only forever life, but also quality of life that unendingly shares in the life of God. We as believers already have this life. We experience the life of God through the Spirit. It is seen in experiencing the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, etc. And then when we die physically, we don't enter into the realm of death, but rather life in all its fullness. You see, for the believer to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. For the believer to die is gain. Far better, Paul says. In God's presence is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore Psalm 16:11. DL Moody said, someday you will read in the papers that DL Moody of East North Field is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment I shall be more alive than I am now. You know isn't this what Jesus taught us? John chapter 11, Jesus said here, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's a good question for us. Do you believe this? I mean, seriously, you believe this? Jesus says of the one who believes in him, though he may die physically, he shall live spiritually, eternally. Here Jesus promises that there is life after death for all those who believe in him. Whoever lives physically and believes in Jesus shall never die spiritually. In the Greek, never involves a double negative. With the I being never, never die. The emphasis is emphatic. Who believes in Jesus will never, never die spiritually. We will never, never be separated from the life of God, ever. That's never going to happen. As Paul says in Romans 8, 39, nothing, absolutely nothing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In faith, we pass from death to life. But you know what? We still live in a mortal body, and these mortal bodies are breaking down. We are those who are spiritually alive and yet living in bodies that are dying. I hate to break it to you. I know it's new. Brand new news. Breaking news. The last component to complete our salvation experience will be glorification. In which our bodies are either raptured, preferably, or resurrected. And our bodies, at that time, will be like that of Jesus in his resurrection. Paul refers to this as the day of redemption in Ephesians 4.30. The word redemption means to be set free. Understand that there are two phases of redemption. Ephesians 1.7 says we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. As believers, we already have this. The first phase of redemption for the believer is already a reality. We have already been set free from the penalty and the power of sin. The second phase, however, is yet future. When Christ comes for his people, at that point, we will be set free from the very presence of sin in the context of a glorified body. At that point, our redemption will be complete. We will have glorified bodies that are completely free from all the effects of sin. We will be free from the penalty, power, and presence of sin in that day. This is the future day of redemption when we will be forever completely set free from all the effects of sin. But this is all part of the package of eternal life. And just as sure as we have been set free from the penalty of sin, so we will also in the future be set free from all the vestiges of death in the body. Glorification is coming. Sin abounded, bringing death, but grace abounded much more. For us as believers, death is a very limited reality. Yes, we still face physical death, but not spiritual And even though we grapple with the reality of physical death as a reality, you know, that experience is very short-lived, no pun intended. It only goes for a few years, right? 70 normally, 80 if you're strong. If you're really strong, maybe longer. But compare that, if you will, with abounding grace that ushers in eternal life that will never, never end. Grace has superabounded in life. Adam did not have eternal life before the fall. He had what we might call probationary life. And he failed his probation. But we have eternal life. Adam did not have righteousness permanently, credit to his account. But we do. We do. I don't care what Adam had before. We Grace is superabounded. Adam did not have the security of eternal life, but we as believers do. Where sin abounded, grace abounded, much more. 1 Corinthians 15, As in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. 15, 56, 57, The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Note this happens through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Those are five vital words. They are referenced at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end of this chapter. Note, Romans 5.1, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 5.11, not only that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. 5.21, as sin reigned in death, so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Through means this happens because of Jesus. He's the means or the agency by which it takes place. It's all based on him. He is the one mediator through whom it all happens. Notice I didn't say through a church, through sacraments, through a pastor. No, 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 no. Through Jesus. Jesus means literally God's Savior. His name shall be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Christ means anointed one, corresponding to Messiah in the Old Testament. Refers to the special chosen one, prophesied, who would come as deliverer and ruler over God's people. Our emphasizes personal possession. All believers have appropriated the truth of who Jesus is by faith. He is our Lord, our Lord and Savior. Lord means God master. When used of the risen Lord, it always denotes his sovereign lordship over all. For all believers, he is recognized as our Lord. Well, Romans 5 presents the truth of two headship realities. For the sake of illustration... Let me speak in terms of two teams. We were born on Adam's team. And this means we're born in sin. This is what we might call team death. It's it's really not a winning team, it's team death. And we all come by this naturally. But then there is Christ's team, this is team life. Now, you don't get there naturally, but rather supernaturally. You were naturally born on Adam's team, but to get on Christ's team, you have to be born again spiritually. Now, in college football, there is this thing called the portal. Now, if a player wants to switch teams, there is a certain time when they can enter the portal and make a move to another team. The portal, spiritually speaking, is now open. God says, behold, now. Right now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. And so he says, we plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Receive. But how does this transition from Adam's team to Christ's team take place. Well, we don't have to wonder. The gospel belief makes it pretty clear. John 1:12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Who were born? Who? Oh, those who received and believe. Who were born, not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. This is God's doing. And this is a package. Receive, believe, born. This is all a package. It doesn't happen apart from the initiation of God. I mean, God is always the initiator. He makes it happen. But note that connection. Romans 5 makes the same emphasis connecting faith to life in Christ. Draw a line from Romans 5.1 to Romans 5.21, and you have the connection. Romans one, justified by faith. We're at peace with God through righteousness, Uh, Grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life. Again, this is a package. This is a package. Faith and eternal life. Grace brings it. Grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life. How's that happen? Justified by faith. It all comes down to this what Jesus has done for you, grace, and receiving him by faith. In Adam, you are born a sinner. In Christ, grace reigns through righteousness to eternal life. In John Bunyan's classic Pilgrim's Progress, there is a character named Mr. Honest who represents genuine faith. Bunyan presents his last words in this way. Quote, then Mr. Honest called for his friends and said to them, I die, but I shall make no will. As for my honesty, it shall go with me. The last words of Mr. Honest were, grace reigns, and so he left the world. Have you honestly believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? If so, when it comes time for you to leave the world, you can also depart, knowing the reality of grace reigns. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Let's stand and have our closing song.